Social distancing is an odd time for tabletop games. On the one hand, these are by nature social, in-person activities, the players sitting around the table pushing cardboard and dice. On the other, a great many of us suddenly have a lot of time on our hands to play them, so we're making do with Zoom and Tabletop Simulator, but it's not the same. On today's episode, I talk with my friend PJ Hambrick, who I met through our shared love for tabletop games, about why these things are so great. What's the appeal of board games or tabletop games, card games, traditional games for you, PJ? It's funny. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was out in the cul-de-sac with the kids that uh, my neighbor my neighbor brought up that they they sort of grew up with with Uno and Skip Bow and Monopoly, all sort of the classics, right? And I was thinking how now, to kind of jump ahead real quickly, like I'm, I feel like I'm really beyond just the games I grew up with. And, and so it's got me thinking about what was the appeal when I was younger and then how you sort of leave them behind because they're still there. And I feel like I sort of left it a bit. It took my buddy from Austin, who was a big, he was my big comic book friend. He and I would write comic books together. We would go, we would buy comic books every Wednesday together in Austin. We just loved comic books. And the one thing that I never intersected with him or with any of my other friends in that area was with gaming. Like somehow gaming just never intersected. For me, it was still always like role-playing games and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And for whatever reason, that was never my thing. And I always associated gaming with role-playing stuff. That same friend, almost 20 years later, realized that in order to get me into gaming, he had to go through my kids. And so when Sawyer was born, he would send sawyer presents under the guise of sending them to sawyer and it was the first present was forbidden island and then the next year it was forbidden desert and then the next year it was what was it oh labyrinth an actual children's game right but the yeah, first... my kids were playing that yesterday I think. <laughs> it's a fantastic game right it's excellent and here, and I'll jump ahead too. Like I'm terrible at all these games. I'm still not sure why I love them. So I'll be fascinated to explore that a little bit more too. But I'm terrible at almost all these games. <laughs> um, but with Labyrinth especially, Sawyer beats me regularly because he just gets it. His brain works that way. And my brain, I think, has never really worked that way. But it still checks the box of of keeping me associated to to the comic book world. And within the comic book world, it's the fantasy world. And so within so within games now, even though I know I'm terrible at them, I'm always going to lose at them, usually to my kids. I know that when I pull out when I pull out a game now, it's one more extension of getting to live getting to live in my comic book world, having come from it having come to the world as a comic book collector. That dovetails with something I was thinking about as I was prepping for our conversation mm-hmm. about the appeal of, so I like, I love tabletop games, but I don't, I, there's not a single, I think, really traditional, like call it abstract game that I am into. Like I don't, I don't enjoy chess. Go is sometimes fun. I'll play checkers with the kids, but like those kinds of games, the really abstract games, I'm not, don't appeal to me and i don't i don't have a lot of interest in like getting good 
at them. And then I, but I love, I love like big complex thematic board games with, you know, lots of bits and terribly inelegant rules. And I think like you, I'm, I'm quite bad at them. You know, I mean, maybe this is the reason is like when you and I play games, it works out pretty well because we're both, you know, pretty <laughs> mediocre. And so we're, we're evenly matched. But I'm, I mean, growing up like in high school, playing these games with my friends, like I think they often just kind of like, yeah, I'll play Warhammer with you again, but I know it's not gonna be that fun because I'm just going to like kick your ass, mm-hmm. you know, was I think the I, I'm terrible at these things. Um, but I think that there's something. I think it's possible to frame a lot of these games as you. So you said, you said like you thought gaming was Dungeons and Dragons was role playing. Mm -hmm. And, and we tend to think of those as categorically different. There's like tabletop RPGs and there's board games and there's collectible card games and there's miniature games. And these things all exist within the orbit of the gaming store, but they're like distinct products. Right. But I think, I think that, part of the appeal for me is that they're not distinct products that a board game a thematic board game is in a sense a highly structured role-playing game so like we played a couple few months ago it's hard to tell in our corona <laughs> lockdown like how long ago things actually happened right, we right. Played, like years ago we played the dune board game which is probably mm. my favorite board game and it's a great game. There's lots of, you know, tactical and strategic depth and you can, you know, like you can be very good at it and very bad at it. And you can learn strategies, all of that stuff. But it's also thematic in the sense that like when you're playing it, the mechanics and the art and the structure like reinforce, it feels like Dune, right? And when you, when you play one of the different houses in it, you feel like a member of that house. And, and so, and that's, that puts it quite adjacent to a role-playing game. Albeit one where you're you're telling a story within kind of the structure of the rules as opposed to, you know, more just narrating it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that might be part of why, like, the appeal, like, it's it feels the same way as reading the comic books. Because these games are, they're games, yes, but they're also storytelling mechanisms. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. That's also one of the things... I've learned about myself as I've as I've gotten older. One of the aspects of one of the aspects of role playing games, and even and even in the sense sort of sort of abstract games as well, I'm much more likely to enjoy something that has that has sort of a kind of a solvable puzzle. So in a way, like I learned the other day that Moncala is a what is it? It's a solved game. When you start Moncala, there's a way when you start it to win it. And so you've solved it, right? And in a way, I sort of, I, I suddenly love that about the game. There wasn't a, there wasn't a big question mark of how to win at it. And, and I know, and I also know, in just talking about this now, this is almost kind of flying in the face of what games are supposed to be about, right? Like, because you want replayability and you want <laughs> you want to be able to get your money's worth. You don't want to buy a game and then be like, oh, I've solved it. Now that's $50 down the tubes, right? I'll never get to play Dune again because I know um, I should never play Paul Atreides, as you discovered. And then, but then apparently the Harkonnens are going to beat everybody. For role-playing games... I think that's never really been my personality has never been one to kind of to be a little more uncomfortable 
knowing that there isn't necessarily a known way to win. And that that utter ambiguity to me, I think, has put me off of role-playing games then. And I find as a, as a grown-up, after playing role-playing games again at Gen Con, um, I was reminded that I utterly hate that style. Hate it. And I know we're sort of jumping into the dislike, but I think it also was a reminder of why I never got in the games when I was younger either, because I didn't like RPGs when I was a kid. I don't like them as a grown up. And I think that's one reason that's one aspect of them I don't like is there's no like guaranteed way to win. It's it's interesting because it does seem like I mean, so a lot of them and they tend not to be the ones that I'm as structurally as into but like a lot of role-playing games are about a victory condition right like you Mm -hmm. you you've got your characters they've got you know powers x y and z that are dispersed unevenly so you have to work together in different ways and play off of each other you've got a dungeon that you know you've got to get to the end of and and the the game master is going to throw a set of obstacles in your way whether it's Mm -hmm. you know traps or mysteries or monsters and there'll be a big boss at the end and you have to defeat it and it's got a set of mechanics that you're going to interact with and that's the victory condition and is that i guess does that shift it far enough because i basically i've just described like most probably most dungeons and dragons campaigns fit closer to that model or especially ones from people who are like you know, probably younger players. It certainly is the way that I played when I was young is like, we're going to map a dungeon and we're going to beat up everything in it. We're not going to do, you know, some grand narrative (laughs) of, you know, nobility struggling for control of a kingdom or something. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, You're right. There's in order for it to be a game, there has to be a victory condition, right? Like there has to be some way to actually win it. Um, But I think, I think there's a second component to role-playing games. And also, I was thinking about this earlier. I was sort of writing some notes for myself of games that I didn't like and what I disliked about them. And some other, one of the things I really dislike in a game is, is a bidding or trading component. Okay. Because that is suddenly, that to me suddenly feels more, um, that's based more on my my almost personality competence right can i sway you to do this there's no there's no like set mechanic for me to beat you with this it's i have to use something more subjective and and so there's a possibility where i could say the exact same words as somebody else but because i didn't say them the right way i'm not as successful as the other person so there is a so there's more of a there's more of a subjective win condition there. There's a subjective component to the win condition that I always feel like I come up short or I'm not as competent as the other people at the table around me can be. And I think that's sort of at the core of where I struggle in the role playing. Sure. You can totally, you can roll the dice and the dice will tell you what you're going to do and you can solve the puzzles. But I always felt like, there was another sort of social victory condition that I had to meet, which was more peer-based of being able to be in this role. And if I wasn't in this role, if I didn't 
play this role well enough or as well as my other friends who are who are as passionate about it, then I was coming up short on that aspect of the game. It's it's interesting as you, you mentioned that because I think I kind of agree and disagree mm-hmm. in my own in my own tastes and I'm trying to think like and I think the scale along which I had to agree or disagree ties into the thematicness of the game. Okay. So I I think that one of the most unfortunate things to happen to casual like tabletop card games in the last several years in terms of just like people being into them is Cards Against Humanity. And Cards Against Humanity is boring as hell. <laughs> and and it frustrates me how many people get together and are just like, well, let's I want to play Cards Against Humanity for the whole evening. Because Cards Against Humanity, I think, is the apotheosis of what you've just described. It is a it is it's not even really a game. It's more of like a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. And so there are a hundred percent of the victory conditions in Cards Against Humanity is does whatever move you does your move scratch the funny bone of some random other player mm, mm-hmm. and so it's a hundred percent subjective based on their you know like we could we could all throw down exactly the same cards and just whoever whatever whim they happen to have whatever mood they happen to be in that's the card they're going to think is funniest and that person scores right. the points and then it goes to the next and so there's no there's basically there's no meaningful strategy there's no way to get better at the game there's no right. tactics in its play there's no way to adapt to the other players it simply is a random number generator that everyone laughs about a lot mm, mm-hmm. and it's a random number generator based on just kind of the whims of another person as opposed to like i made a good move um and so i can't stand it and that seems to fit very much in line with the what you've articulated but on the other hand I very much enjoy a game like Diplomacy. And Diplomacy is another almost entirely about trying to convince other people to do things for you or at least not do things to you. Right? Like it's that's there's some there's some like board control elements and all that, but really to win in diplomacy is to like convince people to go along with your plans. And that's a lot of fun. And I think, as as you were saying this, I think the difference for me is that Cards Against Humanity is not thematic. There's no story unraveling as you play it. Um, there's just people laughing about, you know, crude humor. Whereas Diplomacy, you are telling a grand narrative of, you know, war across Europe and rising and falling of great powers and so on. And so it feels mm-hmm. like it's it's almost like in a role-playing game, the reason that we roll dice is because that random element of not knowing what's going to happen next introduces narrative elements to it. Like that we can be making up a story together while all simultaneously not knowing how that story is going to end in all of its details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't, you don't enter into it with like all the spoilers laid out for you. And... I think that the role like diplomacy doesn't have any random element. It doesn't have, you know, you're not rolling dice or anything like that, but the random element comes a bit in, even if I make a really good case for why you should, you know, not invade (laughs) the UK because I'm going to take it next turn or something, you might decide otherwise. 
but it's a more interesting random element oh, sure. that ties into this bigger story. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I think I've personally felt like that's never... That ability to 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 play to more subjective strengths has never that's just never been in my wheelhouse really mm-hmm. and so like i <laughs> which i think it's which i think some of my other friends are sort of flummoxed by that because like i i mean i like to talk right and and i'm southern and i feel like i can sort of talk about anything and i can bs about anything right <laughs> but but I've learned I've learned in the realm of trying to sell things, right? In the sales world, I'm a terrible salesman because I can't convince myself that this is that that there's a, that there's a truth to what I'm doing enough to really commit to it, and so my whole spiel falls apart incredibly fast, and then I just and then I don't want to do anymore. I think that's why I've been programming for 25 years, right? Like, <laughs> like that's, I'm terrible at that. And I've, and that sort of plays out for me in the same way with games. And I get frustrated by it because you're right. Like the narrative, the narrative in games is, the quality of the narrative is, is such a huge component of the game. That's one of the things we're loving about L5R, right? Like there's actually, there's real stories there and there's real, and there's real personality types to the clans and what they bring to it. And, and you feel like you're, you feel like you have to be one of those people and get inside their head and their styles to be successful at it. And then also know what the other, what's coming at you. Right. Um, that isn't, I'm not always, I'm not always, and I'm jealous of my friends who can do that. Like just hearing you talk about role-playing games and hearing you talk about your experience with them and talking with my other friends who love them. I get, I get really jealous that I can't get to that level with it. And, and in a way I feel like that sort of hits a little bit of, oh, well, since I can't get to their level with it, I think I want to, I find that I, I'm, I gravitate more towards more more objective based games where it's less about me having to having to sort of having to sort of fill the fill fill up the thematic bu- bucket myself and unless just almost letting the game sort of direct me a little bit and and I find that that's where now, even though I've been doing this a short while, I very, I've sort of gravitated to that because I just can't, I just have a trouble, I just have trouble getting into and fostering the narrative part myself. I, I like that in, in part because I, so my tastes in role playing games have changed a fair amount over the years, and the games that I am most drawn to now um, are the ones that impose the most structure on the narrative Mm -hmm. so that it feels like you are you're narrating within strong constraints and and as a result 
the game is pushing you in a certain direction. Because I think you can even think of like a role-playing game, you can go like in in one direction, if you go all the way in one direction, you have like a perfectly generic game that is meant to, all that it does is gives you rules about like, if your character wants to hit something, here's how you roll to see if they hit something. And if your character wants to do, but but we are not going to impose any structure on the narrative. This game, this set of rules can be used to tell any story with any kinds of characters you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other end of it, you have games, which I increasingly find myself really drawn to, where the game was designed to tell an incredibly specific kind of story. And and everything about it, all of the mechanics, all of the structure of it was built by the designer to tell that specific kind of narrative. And and the game simply won't work to tell anything outside of it. And I'm thinking like, you know, we, we've been, my, my group has been playing a game based on the Blades in the Dark system, which okay. is designed to tell the story of ruffians trying to build up their criminal gang in a steampunk city. And that's what it does. And, but there's a version of it. There's like a, a, a reskin slash like redesign of it and called band of blades where this game exists to tell the story of a army that marched to defeat an evil necromancer and lost and now is fleeing back to civilization while being pursued by hordes of undead. It's awesome. And that's the story it tells. And that's the only story that it can tell. Um, and everything in the game is built around telling that story. And so you can't deviate from it. But if that's the story you want to tell, then this is the best thing there is for doing it. And the constraints that it's placed upon you really enable you to do that in a way that kind of pushes it back towards storytelling within the dynamic of like a board game where like when we play the Dune board game, it's only going to tell the story of these great houses competing for control of Dune. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and that, that structure makes like elevates the narrative and it always seems to me to lead to more satisfying narratives. And I think it does that in part by solving part of the problem that you've raised of the, like, I don't know what the victory conditions are. Mm. Right. So like in band of blades, the victory condition is try to make it back to civilization without being killed by the hordes of undead. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love that already. Yeah. That's a great point. Cause when, the I like the idea that it is that the that that the victory condition is a little the path to the victory condition seems a little more narrow there. When when my buddy and I went to Gen Con last year, um, we did this. Oh, I forget what it's called, and it, they've done it for like forty years. But it's this sort of group role playing, and. And everybody was everybody was put into groups of eight, and I think there were like ten different groups, and everybody was was going through the same campaign. And I think mm-hmm. it was it wasn't just solving it. I think everybody was going to solve it, um, but it was also how well you did it, right? But in getting to it, part of my frustration was was sort of the opposite of what you just said. I didn't. I didn't know where we were going or what, what was the point. I think I was just supposed to play this fun character who 
was like a gay werewolf monkey who <laughs> who was in love and I was a mechanic and I loved this other person because she was a liberal arts person or so who knows right but but I didn't know why it any of it was happening and then five hours went by and it was over and I didn't know why or where we went all I know is I got married and divorced in the course of the game and then and I picked up some treasure <laughs> um it sounds I think I would have had a lot more now hearing you talk about that game. I think I would have had a lot more fun with that game had they been able to tell me from the outset or had they even set it up from the outset to say, this is exactly what we're doing. You PJ who doesn't know really anything about role-playing games. This is, this is where we want to lead you. And instead, I think they wanted me to do what they were doing, which was just extemporaneous sort of free form ad libbing almost to get to the end. And I would much rather have played your game. <laughs> <laughs> what? So what have you been playing recently? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the... Well, I've been playing L5R with you yeah. before before the, the apocalypse hit um, and before everybody crashed the system trying to do skirmish on Jingoku. Um, so I've been doing more, I've been doing more solo stuff here, and, but also just kind of learning more games. I think I've actually been learning more games and I have been playing more games, if that if that's a fair answer. um well you've got to i mean at some point you've got to learn so i should i should note for listeners where pj and i are on google hangouts right now and his his webcam has his shelves upon shelves upon shelves of games in the like uh, there was a time when i thought i owned a lot of games but um, so i mean you yeah you got to learn how to play all of those every one point now it's so it's funny you say that um i'd mentioned earlier getting into the hobby as a i started i started in this hobby as a comic book collector and one of the things i learned as i got older was even as a comic book collector i was always more of a collector than a reader and so and i've had too many comics as a result and so as a result my my storage unit full of comics, much to my wife's chagrin, is was mostly about just acquiring comics, right? I wanted to collect them. I wanted to have them. And for the kids, of course, right? Always for mm-hmm. the kids. Um, right. But when people would always ask me, well, have you read them all? I wanted to say yes, but the obvious answer was no. Like, there's no way you could read 30,000 comics, Right. And so I just, I collected them. And then I, I discovered when I started getting into gaming that I had a similar, I had a similar behavioral approach to gaming. It's like, yeah, I'm excited about this. I love this. It scratches an itch. But I suddenly have three shelves in the basement of games and I've probably only played half a dozen of them. And because... Yeah, I found myself collecting them more than playing them. And that's not even counting the the closet of card games. 
right? Which is mostly a ton of, and that, I know we've talked about this, right? Like the card game suddenly, they it almost literally scratches the same itch of comic book collecting where there's a finite amount. Like I know how to get to the end yeah. of like, I don't want to collect really Pokemon. I don't want to collect newer collectible card games. I want dead card games so that I know there's 330 cards in this set. I can collect them all, check the box, and then I get a gold star, right? Um, it wasn't, in, I think thanks to the coronavirus here, it's given me, and you and talking more and talking about more of this with you as well. And actually, um, after your donation of card games, um, it got me thinking that I should actually start looking at these more as a vehicle for play instead of just a vehicle for collecting. And, and I'm a little ashamed to admit that was only in the last month, but I, t- but it, I turned that corner pretty quickly. And then suddenly now I know I was talking to you about wanting to use this as well as sort of a vehicle for getting just more writing done. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those two together have resulted in me actually viewing the cards now and viewing the games as something to be put on the table, to be touched. It doesn't have to be sleeved. I can actually like throw them around and let the, let the kids see them talk to the kids about them. Just talk to myself about them and just figure out how it works. Uh, Can you tell this, this writing project, you mentioned this to me Mm -hmm. a week or so ago and it's, it's really interesting. And, um, and something like I hadn't until you like I it was it fills a need that I hadn't realized mm-hmm. was there until you mentioned it. <laughs> so talk talk a bit about what your plan is with that because I think it's super cool. Oh, thanks, man. Um, I would love for it to turn out super cool. Um, my thinking was that so I'd mentioned before that I've been programming forever and I'm trying to get out of programming. And I've, and one of the ways I want to get out of programming is using writing to get me out of programming, but I need, my original thinking was I needed some sort of product to be able to show other companies that, Hey, look, I can write instead of program. And my thinking was, why don't I write about things that I'm just interested in? And at first it was just, like comic book reviews and write about comic books I like and just sort of general stuff that I do anyway. And then I realized that I had all these games that that are old. I don't really know how to play them because for a lot of them, the rule books are just bad. Like oh, the they're one, extraordinarily bad. Extraordinarily. And one of the things I'm discovering too, the more I do this, is that a lot of times the rules are bad because of the formatting because of the format constraint of the rule book that must fit within a starter deck. Yeah. And, and now that said, I do have to give props to the companies too. Like it's, I'm one of my games now that I'm, that I'm sort of reworking the rules for is called guardians and it's, and it's, it's super fiddly. There's a bunch of little, very esoteric rules, and it's for people much smarter than me. So it's been a very good challenge so far. But one of the things I've discovered when I'm, as I'm sort of transcribing the rules to a much larger eight and a half by eleven um, electronic 
parchment is when I'm able to just type it out on a big sheet of paper, I can fit what all I can fit the most germane points onto one page, onto one big page, right? And then set the margins as I want to to make sure all the ideas fit. And and if I very quickly realized that they just couldn't do that in this little bitty book, which is why which is why rules seem to be seemingly sort of disconnected and very disjointed, almost sort of like almost sort of disparate in how they flow in the book. It's because of the formatting. It just didn't have any other choice. So it's giving me a greater appreciation for the constraints that they had to work around. And I find myself being a little more charitable now for, for bad rule books. It isn't so much that sometimes they are just written very poorly right? Sometimes it's maybe English isn't the first language, maybe like I'm in the IT world. And so a lot of, a lot of the best developers I know aren't the best writers, right? So there isn't always a great intersection of that, but I'm definitely becoming more charitable around the production of these things. Um, but what I've been trying to do then is one of my challenges has been to take the rule books as written for a game that's interesting to me and try to create something that's more that just aesthetically looks better. Um, maybe logically flows better. Um, and in a way too, for somebody like me, who's very, who's, who's newer to the hobby, um, something that is easier for somebody with my, with my, level of experience to digest in the process, right? I think a couple of these books, like Star, the Star Wars CCG, for example, like I think those books assume that everybody was a war gamer or, or has a PhD in engineering, right? Or that they've just been gaming their whole lives. I think they, they just take for granted in the rule book that people are coming at it with that experience. Um, and that's been one of the interesting things too. Like when I first started this two or three months ago, I wasn't that familiar really with the collectible card games, um, with sort of sort of the base mechanics, right, of some of them, and and how and how you can find and how you can find sort of the same mechanics across them all, or sort of similar methodologies across them all. They're just implemented a little differently. When I first started this, I didn't appreciate that. And now even three months into it, I see that a lot of these games are just implementing the same mechanisms slightly differently. They just tweak them a little differently. But they also kind of assume that you already know that's what they're doing when they write them, when they write these rule books. And so that's been a fun part of the process for me, learning sort of the almost some of the base mechanical templates that they employ. Uh, but then also how to how to sort of rewrite them or reword them so that somebody like me who has very little experience with them can can appreciate what they're trying to do and how they and how they work within sort of a bigger sort of a bigger narrative of even the game design. Yeah, I think this is. I mean, I think this is super cool because I can having played. You know, especially during the CCG boom. So I worked in a tabletop gaming store 
at the height of the CCG boom, when there were just new collectible card games coming out every week. And and I think, you know, it was just like making a new CCG was like printing money because everyone would just buy them, whether it was collectors or, you know, everyone was convinced every game was the next big thing. Awesome. And and so this would have been in like, I mean, this is the mid nineties. And and how many of them um so even my fa- like so my favorite collectible card game of all time is the Dune mm-hmm. card game. There's a there's a running theme obviously here. Uh, I adore that game, but the rule book was famously bad. Like probably to the point where there were some other mistakes they made in distribution that probably resulted in the game not selling as well as it could have. Uh, but but the low quality of the rule book was a big factor i think in that game not succeeding because people bought it and they read it and they had no idea how to play and that was like distressingly common at the time uh and and it's it's interesting because it seems to it does seem to have gotten better right like modern mm-hmm. games seem to have better rule books than old games and i wonder if that's you mentioned they just assumed that everyone was already a gamer. And that was probably a better assumption back in the 90s. Because back in the 90s, like, it was just weird kids coming in to the gaming store. It was the nerdy kids coming to the gaming store, and no one else was really doing this stuff. Right, right, right. Guys yeah. in the know. Yes, and now now it's this tabletop gaming, for I think all sorts of reasons, has exploded in popularity. Um, and everyone is far more people are into it now than used to be um especially board games but so there's that that assumption is no longer holds but i think there is also there's like a growing recognition that um and this this plays out in like programming too that like the person who wrote the code is maybe not the best person to explain how to use the program (laughs) to another player and that Writing a good rule book is not simply writing down how you understand how to play this game. It's like it's a it's a real skill in crafting a rule book that is intuitive and helpful. Um, and and that there's been kind of a growing recognition of that too. But but mm-hmm. unfortunately, these old games, especially these CCGs, which are a lot of these old CCGs, you can pick up for you know next to nothing online yeah are just booster boxes for you know 10 bucks a piece or something but the rules are terrible and and it's not just that like they make it hard to learn but there will be if even if you understand what you've read you will run into countless edge cases during play that the rules don't give you a good answer yes. to yes um and and so having having an archive in the same way that i there's that um esoteric order of gamers website where the guy is a very talented graphic designer and his hobby is making quick reference sheets for board games that are often much much better than the ones that come with the game they're so just like like to the point where just if i get a new game the first thing i do is see if he's got a reference sheet um but he's just he's brought his skill set to that doing the same thing for the full like those sheets those sheets aren't everything you need to play the game because you still need to wade through the rule book to make Mm -hmm. sense of the sheet but but what you're doing redoing the rule book kind of can bring can enable people i think to go back to a lot of these old dead games that are still you know very playable today and and accessible and jump into them in a way that would have been quite difficult oh that's cool i hope that's true i hope so 
Um, I'll say it's certainly making it it's certainly making it easier for me to to want to explore other games because you're right. Like when um, I never read the Dune. I never read the Dune rulebook, although I feel like I'm now, sure you can find a PDF <laughs> of it online. It's rough. I feel like I have to now just to see. Um, but the first time, like the very first game I explored with this was, um, it was called, um, here it is right here. It's called um, One-on-One Playoff Hockey, right? And it, and it was this wonderful little mix of, it was collectible cards and and dice, right? So suddenly it was this great little hybrid. And and the rule and the rule book for it, right? It was fairly it was fairly straightforward, but there were some things in it I didn't understand. And this goes back to what you were saying too earlier about how how things be how is it people are maybe having an easier time getting the games now? Is it what I've discovered, what this game taught me was if because of things like BGG, the board game geek mm-hmm. site and, and YouTube and just the Internet, right? The Internet in general. If you have a question about a game, type the game and then type how the hell does this work into Google. And it's, it'll probably bring you to BGG or to a YouTube channel or something. You'll get your answer. Right. And then especially for edge case kind of stuff, somebody will have solved it and, and posted it. What I discovered was for this game, nobody played this hockey game. Nobody. I couldn't find anything for it. And so I had a question about it. And when I went on the inter- the Internet to find out about it, I couldn't find anything. So it went back in the box. Like it sat in the box for a year because I wasn't. I didn't have enough experience to figure out what they were trying to say. The internet wasn't able to tell me what to say. And so this hockey game was my dune, right? This, <laughs> this was it like this, except the one difference is this turned me off of wanting to learn anything else. So everything sat in my closet for a year. It wasn't until I picked up the next game, which was guardians. And I did a Google search for it. And I'd already known that BGG had a listing for it and people, and there's videos for it and people have written about it and people have criticisms of it and praise for it. And, and so you could really get into it. And I think it made a big difference for me too, knowing that there must've been something to the game because it had enough of an internet presence for me to find it. The thing that turned me off about the hockey game was I couldn't find anything. So this game must suck, which ha- which was what I inferred from that, right? If there's no information on the internet, then it must not matter. Um, so, <laughs> which was very my very gut sort of reaction to to finding information for it. But I had, but that is one thing I learned. If you can find, you can find much more information about these games now. And if you have questions for it, you can just Google it. And if you want to rewrite some some rules for it, just hit up the internet, do what I do with coding, Google in how do I write this function, find somebody who wrote it, pull it into a document, tweak it, do a little better things to it, and then pull a paycheck. So outside of the this hockey game and <clears throat> guardians are there any 
dead CCGs you're most interested in mm. playing? Ones that, you know. <laughs> so you may recognize a couple of these, because I think you may you may have owned a few of them. Um, so the Star Wars CCG. Um, the old Decipher one. Yes, yes. Not to be confused with uh, with the Wizard of the Coast one. Um, the I really want to I really want to learn how to play, but am utterly intimidated by the thought of learning Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I probably shouldn't tell Donna, but I I just ordered a bunch of Star Trek CCG cards. Okay. Just to just to see, just to see. Um, I I've read that it's a very different experience. It isn't so much head to head battling; it's more sort of problem solving yeah. a little bit. Like your missions are sort of your overarching puzzle, and you're trying to solve the puzzle. Um, and I kind of like that. Like I'm not much of I'm not a very aggressive player. Like I think in the Magic world, I guess I would never play red. Right, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I know you're much more of a defensive player, and and I find and I think I'm much more. I would love to be a more aggressive player, but I find myself always sort of heart, always sort of like retreating back to to being more of like a control deck player. Um, so there's Star Wars CCG, there's the Game of Thrones, there's a Star Trek. Um, one that I just love the idea of and would just love to really get into because I have a ton of it is Force of Will. I've never heard of that one. So this one, this one is interesting. And the reason I got into it or the, the appeal of it was I would, I've never wanted to get into magic like at all. And I, and I think part of that too is there's just so much of it. Mm-hmm. Because because I I still can't help but approach this as a collector, yeah. and there's just so much of magic, and it's so expensive to be in. Uh, it's so expensive to sort of participate in that I've always shied away from it. Force of Will is supposed to sort of fix all the problems with magic, like Mana Screw was a big one, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't even know what that term meant until I found Force of Will. Like... So you know how in magic you have to there's a whole ratio of how much mana you should have in your deck based on what based on the other number of cards, right? There's like a you should have like between like 22 to 25 kind of thing. And so you hope mm-hmm. you draw them. Right. And oh no, what if you draw what if they're the top 25 cards in your deck, then you're pretty much screwed. Um that's always been from what I've been reading, that's always been a complaint about magic. Force of Will was created by some old magic players i think and the first thing they wanted to do was eliminate that mana screw so instead of putting all your mana in your deck you literally have a separate mana you you have a separate mana deck and every turn you sort of it's a decision do i pull one do i pull a mana or do i play something else and so they and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how so many games one of the things I'm learning is they just implement similar mechanical devices and just they just tweak them. They make little slight adjustments to them, and that radically alters the game. 
And that's basically force of will. Like force of will is magic with slight alterations. And now it's a completely different game. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, it, it's interesting you mentioned like I have, I played magic, you know, when it, what would it, I think I bought cards when it was in like, was it beta or revised? I can't remember, but the early sets, I, I bought magic cards and played oh, wow. it and, and I, I have little interest in it now. And a lot of that is because, and this ties into what you were just saying, it was because it was the first. So it's a, you know, it's an unbelievably innovative design mm-hmm. for the time. Um, an incredible idea. And and I still think Richard Garfield is the best CCG designer bar none. Um, but it like so many games that have come out since have recognized flaws in its design and improved upon them. Mm. Um, and, and so it feels like, I mean, to tie it back to like RPGs, it feels like playing, you know, like first edition Dungeons and Dragons was wildly innovative for its time, but I have zero interest in playing it right now because so many other games do what it did better now because mm. we've had, what, 50 years of 40 years of like just, you know, iterating on design and figuring, like learning. From Wait, has it been around way. for 40 years? When did D&D? D&D came out in the 70s. Um, yeah, so, and and magic is similar. Like it, we've we've learned from what works and what doesn't. And, and so many games do it better, including many of Richard Garfield's games, you know, like Netrunner, which I think is probably the best designed CCG mm. ever, you know, like I, I, no one has topped <laughs> that particular design. And I guess it's extraordinary that he did that design not too many years after magic. Right. So that's, that's a pretty old game too. That's a mid nineties mm-hmm. game. Uh, but it solves a lot of, a lot of these problems. And, um, but it's it's interesting that there are in so in RPGs there's this term called fantasy heartbreakers. Okay. Which are games where someone someone played Dungeons and Dragons a whole lot and came up with some house rules for it and then decided to basically publish a new game that was D&D with their house rules. And um and you call it a fantasy heartbreaker because they've like poured their heart and soul into this and it's like it's just D with some things and it's it's interesting because there's a lot it feels like there's a lot of like fantasy heartbreakers for magic too where it's like we were super into magic and so we're gonna make magic but we're gonna fix the few problems mm-hmm. as opposed to like which which is really which is really good but it's like comparing that to like we're gonna do something radically different from magic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. too um and and there does seem to be this kind of ongoing or now it's um it seems like there's a lot of games that are variations on Hearthstone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um and and so it's and so it's it's I it strikes me as just kind of intriguing the way that people approach the game design of like what I want to do as a game designer is take this thing that I loved and fix it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a really valuable thing to do versus like I want to take a bunch of my influences and make something like entirely new. And, and I'm thinking back to like when I was at, you know, working in the gaming store at the height of the CCG boom and how many games were like across that, that spectrum um, of, 
you know, this is this is basically magic, but we have a different term for tapping. <laughs> and there yeah. were like there were a lot of those. Um or or this is something like Netrunner, which just runs in a completely different direction. And and how long it took and how many of these mechanics stuck around and evolved slowly yeah. over time. And I think that's one of the real appeals of going back to these old games is like seeing what felt cutting edge and how things have changed and which I guess pain points in play people have identified and figured out interesting solutions to that weren't obvious to people, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you were, when you were working in the store, would you, would you guys get excited to see a game delivered that, that promised to be, that promise to be to not be magic, to promise to introduce something totally new and something radical. And then would you be excited about that? And then would you be how would you react when you discovered that, oh crap, this thing actually is like magic? Or wow, this is totally new and exciting, but it is boring as balls. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's like I'm trying to think like that's a good question. I'm I think what the reaction when new stuff came in was, um, I mean, because there was there was the sales reaction, and that was you know as like the two owners of the store, Chuck and Joe, were their names, uh, and their I mean, so their thing was you know like are we going to be able to sell a bunch of booster boxes of this and. And and that it was like, well, if it's new magic, yes. And then most new games will be able to sell initially a bunch of, but then they're, you know, because there'll be people who there there was one guy who was an attorney and a regular at the store, and he would buy he would basically buy five to ten booster boxes of everything that came in. Like just any any new game, and then it, it was it was huge. And I remember hearing at some point that he like was it he things didn't turn out well for him i think he overspent himself on ccgs which is a not a great way to go uh but <laughs> but but i think there was i think there was also just like a level of cynicism that as as ccgs blew up it was just like oh god here's another one like it's you know mm. it'll it'll have an initial set and maybe one expansion then it'll burn out and do we and the problem with ccgs is they're so dependent on a network of players to sustain them like that that it's almost it's almost like do you really want to try to sell people on this new one knowing that it's going to be dead in 6 months and they're not going to be able to find anyone to play it with and they'll have sunk hundreds of dollars into it um and and the problem like games have gotten better today i think at being interesting and playable out of the initial set out of the initial like so like the living card game format where you get you know enough to play some interesting games with but back then it was like you buy a starter deck a starter deck is almost entirely random it may not be terribly playable so you really have to sink a hundred to two hundred dollars in to even get like a decent experience with the game um and and then it could be dead and who knows you know and so and and we're buying inventory that may then be, you know, we have to eBay it for $10 a booster box <laughs> not too far down the road. Um, it was a weird time. It was a weird time. I bet. Um, it seems like, too, you you really had to, um, 
you really had to sort of manage your your relationships with with the regulars as well, right? You couldn't necessarily take advantage of them, right? It's like a casino with its whales. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great analogy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right, right. And then, and even the whales expect to pay off at some point, right? <laughs> yeah. But I miss I miss those days. I miss like the you know there's a new card game. Like I mentioned to you like I was in high school um, as was the you know the the epitome of making it in high school was to move into the basement and have the basement of the house all to yourself. And so I had the basement at my mom's house, and I would get one copy like. I would get a copy of every CCG that came out. I'd get a card and then I could stuck oh, yeah. those in the molding around the ceiling. And it went like all the way around the ceiling in the basement. Um, and those are unfortunately gone because that would be a lot of fun to have all of those. But I think oh, I, be I awesome. had one card from probably every collectible card game that came out throughout the mid to late 90s. And the exuberance of it was pretty fun. And obviously the industry has shrunk a lot mm-hmm. now. There's not as many of these things, but- uh, I kind of miss it. <laughs> have you ever thought about like a, and a another buddy and I, actually a buddy's wife and I have talked about opening up like a joint um, coffee shop, bookshop, <laughs> gaming shop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you'd have to, you'd have to convince my wife <laughs> um, that that would be. That would be the harder sell. And retail, that was the one thing I learned too working in the shop is retail is hard. Yeah. Like it's not just hanging out at the gaming shop. No, that's what I want it to be. You mean it's actual work? Yeah, I don't think it's, (laughs) I don't think it's that. I want to thank PJ for coming on my show. And if you enjoyed our conversation or any of the conversations I've had on this podcast and want to hear more from me, take a moment to sign up for my very infrequent newsletter where I talk about what I'm working on, reading, and thinking about. You can find a link in the show notes or just visit aaronrosspowell.com.